Hello, welcome to the Leading for Resilience podcast, where we ask senior decision makers to share their thinking on what kind of leadership builds resilience in this time of permacrisis. I'm Shazre Cumberhill, Director for Strategy and Impact at Resilience First. And I'm Peter Willis, based in Cape Town, a senior associate of Resilience First and the founder of Conversations That Count. Today, we're joined by Verena Radilovich. Verena is the Vice President for Business Engagement at the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions based in D.C. Verena, welcome. Thank you for having me here today. Verena, I'm very interested that you have spent your, it looks from your bio that we've read, that you've spent your entire career attempting quite energetically to move the dial on environmental pollution, climate change. And I'm curious to know where this comes from. Where do you trace back this desire to remedy our environmental trajectory? And and what are are your sources of motivation? So it starts way back. I was a teenager and I, I come from a home where multiple languages are spoken. And I grew up with one language. And by the time I was a teenager, my my parents wanted me to learn the other one, Spanish. And so I went to an immersion program in Costa Rica and uh, I was 15 and I took a sort of a weekend jaunt with a group to the rainforest. And I grew up in New York City where there's uh, there are trees. Um, there, there are a few of them on the on the block that I grew up in Queens, but I'd never seen anything like this before. And I think that having a, a visceral experience of, of nature that really affected me and I just loved it. And I thought, this is really what I want to be doing. And I followed that thread, you know, through my studies and um, early into my career. And I just always knew that this was something I wanted to do. I didn't know at the time that I really enjoyed working with businesses. I think that might've been a clue that in the newspaper, I'd always pick up the business section. And, and I found that to be the most interesting part of the paper, in addition to the arts and le- leisure section of the paper. But I, I fell into it and I feel lucky that I knew from an early age, I listened to myself that I liked something and I followed it. I'm curious that, to know you spoken there about the, I'm getting a sense of awe and wonder at the rainforest so on and that really lighting something up for you. And yet the sort of energy you put into your career makes me wonder whether you've also had some element of anxiety about the trajectory we're on as a civilization and so on. Has that played a part or have you managed to stay really connected to that sense of wonder and rainforest awe? No, I mean, obviously that faded after a while. I sort of returned to it um, here and there throughout throughout my life. But I think what happened early in my career is I, I fell into a space where I got exposed to working with businesses of different types. My first job at an NGO was working with a bank on reducing pollution prevention and mining. I then, you know, after my graduate studies, went to work for the majority of my career so far in the U.S. government at the EPA, which was a fantastic place to work, despite changes in the administration fell into a working with companies on different environmental issues in a voluntary way and trying to find ways to sort of do business differently. And that is, I think, the the other thing that inspires me is how do we create different ways of operating in a more carbon-constrained way, but how do we do that in a way that sort of continues to deliver the goods and services that we need in our society? How do we do business differently? So that question fascinates me in a different way than sort of the wonder and awe of, of sort of our natural environment. And really, throughout my career, watching businesses grapple with the market forces, the political forces, the geopolitical forces that affect their decision making, and how, and, and then thinking about the counterbalance to that, how do we sort of change markets, change regulations, affect consumer behavior changes, so that we have 
goods and services designed in a way that is neutral or better for the environment. That has been through my the through line throughout my career. And I've been able to see how in different industry sectors and in different contexts where it's successful and where it's not successful. And because I've seen it be successful, it does give me hope that there's a path forward, despite the fact that the impacts of climate change are here and they are, they're real and they're, and they're probably not going away. I notice you say along the way there, you, you talk about businesses changing and business, you know, designing fresh ways for businesses to produce goods and services. But my assumption is that you have mainly worked with individuals within those businesses and teams of individuals within those businesses. And I, I just wonder whether you've drawn any patterns and conclusions for yourself out of this, what in my experience has always been an enormous gulf between some of the individuals you can get with to talk to within an, a business or within a government department even, and the thing that they work within, the larger entity that is the business. And we, the public, talk glibly about, well, you know, business can do this or business should do that and so on. But actually, if you have to go and create change in a business, you have to start with one person usually and work out from there. It's been really interesting because over the last 20 years, we've seen a real shift in the way that sustainability is treated within companies. So earlier, you know, 20 years ago or so, you had the function of, of often what is called environment, health, and safety. This was more of a compliance function to make sure that companies were in compliance with regulations, of chemical pollution, air pollution, water pollution. And those roles evolved into broader sustainability roles with a, bit, a little bit of a broader remit, but it was largely focused on making sure that companies were doing the right thing. It wasn't necessarily a position that was empowered to provide strategic direction within a company. And really over the last 20 years, as we've had consumer mindsets shift, we've seen more evidence of climate change. We've seen companies have early successes in taking steps on the, on the environment where they saw cost savings. Energy efficiency is a great story that continues to be told. And so as companies could see wins in reducing emissions and reducing cost, as the social currency of doing good on the environment or doing doing well on the environment increased, we did start to see some competition among companies in terms of being able to, to actually create veritable improvements and then be able to claim those and be better than their peers. And so this was really in the last you know 15 years or so, we started to see more of this. And then we had the Paris Agreement, where businesses really coalesced around that, um, particularly when the previous administration stepped away from the Paris Agreement. We saw a number of companies step into it. This was also around the time that companies developed a better understanding of their environmental impacts. You can't manage what you don't measure. So they, they began to have more clarity in terms of where their impacts were. The public began to see that. And then, and then companies could be held more accountable to making improvements. And around this time, that's when the personnel, to get back to your question, the personnel issue began to change. And we began to see more and more positions being elevated at a strategic level, closer to the C-suite, where there was more ability to do more at, at, across different business units. The, the goal for many companies is to embed sustainability into all the different business functions, whether it's procurement, it's operations, supply chain, you know, sales. But what I've seen is that really the commitment to the environment has to come from the top. It, when it comes from the top, when it comes from the CEO or the you know, chief marketing officer or chief commercial officer, then the rest of the staff are empowered to make those changes. When you don't have that deep, true commitment from the top, it is like pushing a rock uphill. You will get some change, but you will not get all the change that you need. 
And one of my favorite parts of my, my jobs throughout my career has been really thinking about how do we create systems, mechanisms, tools, resources, peer exchange, social pressure that help these people within these companies make the change that they need. We all know, Verena, that the best or the most effective impact is from collective impact when people work together towards a common goal. And I think one of the things that's quite interesting to see is that businesses aren't designed or built to work together most of the time. They're in competition with each other. Can you tell us a little bit about how you've experienced this process of trying to build trust between businesses, trust between businesses, between businesses and governments to drive forward common goals? How and what do you see the potential of getting businesses and government to a state where we're all working collectively in a pre-competitive state towards these common objectives? So I'll tackle your your first question first, Um, business to business and then business to government and then kind of all, all together. So within business to business, businesses will collaborate on the in the areas where they don't have to compete. So for example, if they all have common suppliers that they need to get the you know emissions down from them or if they're all grappling with one particular kind of challenge that is not core to what they sell and how they make their money that is a ripe space for for pre-collaboration because they're they're not they're trying to solve a problem together and they realize that they can solve it collectively i'll give you an example one of the projects i'm most proud of when when i was at the EPA is we're working a lot with the electronics industry and we realized that through a life cycle analysis, a lot of the, the climate impacts were happening way, way up in the value chain, in the semiconductor space, and the flat panel um, display manufacturing. But there are a limited number of suppliers that supply these products across the entire world. And so the branded products that we were working with, they were all sourcing from the same suppliers. And so what they needed, what we needed is sort of to, to create momentum to encourage those suppliers to take action to reduce some potent greenhouse gas emissions that are used in manufacturing. And it was through the collective action of these companies that and large retailers that got the attention of at least two large flat panel manufacturers. Whether it was the impetus for them, you know, implementing greenhouse gas reduction technologies, it could have been, it seemed to have been, but it was an active conversation with their suppliers and we saw action taking place as a result of that. So what we're seeing now is we're seeing companies, whether you're a data center or you're a large manufacturer that uses a lot of electricity, you're not competing on electricity. You're competing on the product that you're selling and you need to reduce your emissions coming from electricity. And so really coming together, and we see this with an organization called the Clean Energy Buyers Alliance. Um, They've done a lot of great work with regard to collectively getting companies to sort of source renewable energy. Um, I used to work at EPA's Green Power Partnership Program. This is a 20 plus year program where we recognize the buyers of clean energy because they spur the market. And so we had a number of large companies, tech companies in particular, that were competing every year to be, you know, Green Power Partner of the Year. And so really trying to find ways where you collectively want to push on a particular issue to get it to move. What has been interesting over the last decade is as companies have been able to largely take on these efforts themselves, where they're being able to make reductions, they've been able to identify where they can create improvements, and they've and they've and and what companies really enjoy is peer learning from each other and also across different sectors. We don't realize that they often can't just pick up the phone and, and call their competitors or a company in a different sector. Whereas the work that I've done at EPA, our programs, you know, facilitate that. The work happening now in the NGO space. We do, we do this at C2ES. Other organizations also do this. It's creating a forum for companies to come together and learn from each other. That's really important. Getting back to the government issue, when companies, as I say, come to the end of themselves, 
when they realize that they cannot do it on their own, they need others. But when they realize that as industries, they cannot affect change on their own, that is when they really need government. And so as we see um, over the last two years with the Biden administration, it's been a complete sea change where you have a forward-leaning government that is in the United States that is interested in affecting climate change. There's some real opportunities for public-private partnerships, um, ways of engaging with the administration. They're putting money through the Inflation Reduction Act. Businesses are here to try to take advantage of that and collectively bring solutions forward. But when we think about leadership at the company level, it's evolved into a new expectation, not only that you are committed to taking responsibility for your environmental footprint across your operations and to the extent that you can in your value chain, but there's also an expectation that you engage with governments on advancing good policy that can really move move change at a systemic economy-wide level. For example, if you're a car company and you have a commitment to electric vehicles, great. The electric vehicle charging infrastructure also needs to be there. So car companies today don't worry about gas stations because they're ubiquitous. They're everywhere. But when we think about EV charging, what is the barrier to purchasing an electric vehicle? Where do you where do you charge it? What is the impact on the grid? Are utilities ready for that? It's an interconnected conversation that's happening now. And you cannot, you can mediate only so much, but at some point you need economy-wide policies that can sort of make the system change. And that's the point where we are today. That's fascinating, Verena. And the picture you're painting is one of steady, incremental, and it sounds a quite successful engagement with business and linking business with government and so on around emissions reduction and pollution reduction and so on. As you know, the core question that we're asking in this podcast series is around what's required of leaders to enable their organizations and wider society to become resilient to what's coming. And I'd love you to tell us a little bit about what the businesses that you're engaged with are telling you about their experience of or their concerns looking ahead for climate, particularly extreme weather events and, and the risks those pose to their business model. Back in 2020, one company that makes large components for the electronic sector said to me that COVID was the dress rehearsal in terms of shocks to the system and shocks to business, and that climate change was actually the real tsunami that was coming. And while businesses have been preparing for a changing climate for a long time, COVID really, I think, crystallized what it means to have a threat that you don't see coming happen very quickly. Because the impacts of climate change are slow and incremental, and then they're very quick, they're very fast. So as we have a more unstable and unpredictable climate, the impacts are also not always predictable. And so how do you manage um, these impacts? We saw this several years ago. There were uh, floods in Southeast Asia and major supply chains in electronics and auto were affected for a long time. And that was a precursor. So when we think about how can leaders and businesses prepare themselves, we are seeing a move towards that. In the last five years, there's a framework that businesses are beginning to use on measuring and understanding their climate-related financial risks. We're seeing more interest from regulators in the EU and the US in describing these risks, but that can be misunderstood as a reporting exercise. What needs to happen is that businesses really internalize these risks as, as core to their business and that it is going to be part of the way forward. One airline, for example, that we know um, has done quite an extensive risk assessment and some of the risks we're looking at, like what if it's too hot to take off in certain parts of the country? What if the tarmac is flooded? 
So when we think about the different kinds of geographies where companies operate, they need to be thinking about what are the potential risks there? Too much heat? I didn't realize an airplane can't take off if it's too hot. And so when we think about extreme heat, extreme flooding, uh, wildfires, uh, we have another company in our council that has a has undergone bankruptcy because of you know wildfires that that sparked problems in their territory. So, so the the issue is getting companies to integrate this at, as part of their risk culture. But Peter, I wanted to go back and 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 speak to some a point that you raised earlier about we're engaging businesses with government. We're engaging a subset of businesses. When we look at the S and P five hundred, we know that. 80% or 90% of the S&P 500 has climate goals. They're measuring their, their impacts. When we think about companies, there's probably 42 companies on our council. There's probably 100 companies that are really active in some way on climate, maybe more. But when we think about the millions of businesses that need to take action, I mean, that's at a scale that is global. And so one of the things we try and do is think about how do we engage the prominent companies in their sectors to take leadership positions and to really extol those and talk about those as a way to send signals across the sector of what is possible. Because at the end of the day, yes, we have, you know, a sizable amount of the U.S. GDP that we work with, but it's not all of it. And yes, we work with companies that are responsible for about 8 to 10% of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions, but there's 92% more that we need to be working with. And so this is the big challenge, is how do you mainstream a way of thinking across businesses and how do you get whether it's investors or regulators or the, the right market signals to mainstream and codify that climate risks are risks that you need to embed from the beginning. How do you think you're doing on that? I think you've mapped out the problem really beautifully there, that, that you've got some leaders, some pioneers who see the, the sense of this, but they're a minority. And you've mentioned investors, you mentioned government, because those are those are strong leverage points if they would do their leverage. You know, I had a question sort of stored up in my mind that I thought I might ask you. I'm going to ask you now that if you know the EPA intimately, having worked there 16 years, if you were given the job of running the EPA or maybe even one step higher, the sort of secretary for environment, I'm not sure what the title exactly is, what would be your number one strategic priority to shift this and accelerate this sort of corporate action. Well, I don't envy the person in that role because he or she has an enormous remit. I might answer the question a little bit differently because in some ways the EPA is tasked with making sure that the largest sources of pollution in the country are reduced. I think that there's other levers in society, other departments, whether it's our banking system, whether it's our our trade, our our overall macroeconomic policy, how does that integrate climate change into its thinking? Because once that takes place, and I think that's outside the remit of the environment person, then the job of the environment sort of head becomes about how do we make sure that you know we have the right regulations in place to, to minimize pollution? How do we harness the market forces to sort of advance the technologies that we need to reduce emissions? How do we join businesses in the conversation around how are we building a more climate resilient future? How are we decarbonizing? Because I think when all of the onus is put on the environmental department, they can only affect their part. But yet it's the other parts of society and the economy that need to change to be able to see climate change as, as a veritable threat that is here and, in, and embed it within our systems. Then it makes it easier to address it. 
It's almost like the analogy of a company. If you were to keep all of the environmental focus within the environment team, but never have the other business units address environment, you're only going to get so far. So something our listeners don't know yet is that you, Verena, have a passion for photography. And I spent a really lovely half hour browsing your very beautiful portfolio. And it struck me that a lot of the images are of people uh, and of people in interacting with or engaging with their environment. Can you tell us a little bit about what drives your art? Well, thanks for looking at it. Um, it's, it I haven't touched it in a while, so I'm, <laughs> it's a little, uh, it's always humbling when someone looks at your, at your work. I think that we, the reason why I, I, I put people in the photos, one, people fascinate me. So, you know, how people interact, how they are, who they are. You know, one of the things that I, um, I think about a lot when I, when I photograph is an environmental story is really a story about people because it's one thing when you see a beautiful space, you know, how, how are people interacting with it? But it's another thing to think about like, how are people engaging and living in environments that are not clean, that are not beautiful? Like, what does that actually look like? And what does that mean for someone's well-being? The way that I think that we will get people to care about the environment is a connection to themselves or a connection to seeing someone else, you know, in a different environment. How can we engender more empathy and compassion for those that live differently than us? It's when we can see them and we can kind of connect with them on a human level. When things were a bit slow at the EPA a couple of years ago um, under the previous administration, I went to South America, I went to India to see how e-waste was being managed. And this was something that I had started in my career a long time ago, but it was an issue that fascinated me because it was the issue of sort of how stuff moves in the world and where you can actually see this end up. At the end of the day, when we think about working with businesses, it's about storytelling. A lot of the work that we do is what is credible storytelling, but it is about how do we connect, you know, how we make and consume things with sort of the way that we live. I think a, an environmental story that doesn't have people in it makes it difficult to connect and to care about the issue. Can I bring you back to um, something you were describing earlier around the climate risks that companies, in your view, are now starting to take much more seriously and they're, they're sort of expanding their risk registers to include some of the more extreme events that are now showing up on the horizon. And I, I want to connect it to the storytelling idea, because for most people in most companies, I would think the risk register is not much of a story. It's a necessary sort of analysis of, of risks. But I'm very interested in how companies, when an emergency arises, when a disaster is starting to unfold because of an extreme weather event, how does that company show up? How do those people in their, and their teams and their brand, if you like, how do they show up under that extreme condition of a breaking disaster? and so on. Because I think that's where so much is going to be decided, not on spreadsheets of risk assessment and so on. And, and my imagination is that the way leaders tell the story of possible risk or remembered disaster from previous experience, and how did we show up, how will we show up, how might we show up, and so on, it seems to me quite fertile ground. What, what's your thinking on that? Let me um, dissect that a bit. Uh, I think the first part of, and I'll, I'll connect it back to storytelling here in a minute because it's important. A lot of companies have experienced climate risks. I, I know of one company that went through a very painful experience 
resulting from climate change. And as a result of that, you know, it took them a while to kind of recover. But the importance of embedding adaptation and resilience into their operations going forward is pivotal because it was so painful what happened. And I think that when a company goes through something that is a threat to their existence, it does change the way that they do things going forward. What's important is connecting the dots that this that climate change is, is a continuous and potential ongoing risk, because there's always the challenge that a company might view this as a one-off, and that might go into sort of crisis management and crisis control, and then it's finished, and then um, it's not happening again. And for companies that are, are location-based, uh, where the hazard shows up, whether you have a wildfire or a continuous flood, it has to happen year after year. I mean, that is one way that businesses going forward will will see that it's ongoing. But I think that there is a, a potentially more compelling way to, to approach it with companies that, that might have medium risk. If it hasn't happened yet, it's difficult to sort of convince people that they should be worried about it. So how do we do this? So the first thing that I find really interesting about we going back to visuals and storytelling, resilience and adaptation lends itself very well visually when it goes wrong. You know, there's always a sort of disaster, hurricanes. I mean, people sort of gravitate towards imagery that is that is provocative, but that doesn't always, that sometimes paralyzes people and they don't always know how to move forward from there. So that grabbing the imagination is not so difficult, but then making companies understand that this could come for them is one of the difficulties. But I think a way forward is also to identify what is your path forward as a result of that? What is the opportunity in this situation and how do you sort of guard against those risks? And I think if that is done in a, in a sort of concerted and coordinated and orchestrated way where you have this, the potential solutions helping companies see for themselves where cost savings may exist, where resilience can lead to new business opportunities, where maybe taking resilient measures aren't so difficult. We think about this with energy efficiency. Like, yes, it was difficult to do the switch once. Now you save a lot of money, done. Like do this across all of your buildings. So I think identifying and unearthing resilient solutions. So when you package the problem, you come with a solution and sort of empowering people within companies to take those steps and potentially creating you know, demand for that in the economy from investors, from policymakers and expectation among consumers. So for example, real estate, you know, what is the role of insurance in real estate? What is the role of cities in places where buildings are being built? What is the role of homeowner awareness? How do we create an ecosystem where there's a market and, and a policy environment that is reinforcing among businesses the need to do better? And then how do we tell stories of what that looks like? Because it's sometimes more challenging to tell a story of something that went well. The sky is blue, the grass is green, everyone's happy. Like that's a lovely story. And, you know, when we think about solutions, journalism and, and storytelling, that's great. Does that grab headlines? No. And so how do we think about not just having the disaster photo on the front page of the paper every couple of summers, but how do we sort of create this like broader narrative and conversation and examples of when it is going well. Because that, I think, for the companies that are not so focused on incorporating climate risks, if it becomes ubiquitous and everyone else is doing it, they will too. When you, in the conversations you're having now with leaders, and given how long you've been having some of these conversations with businesses and with those in decision-making roles, what's the one thing that gives you most hope looking ahead, Verena? Well, lots of things give me hope. I find that I meet a lot of business leaders that are deeply and genuinely affected and committed to making a difference on climate. 
they don't always know how, they don't always have all the tools that they need. But I think what is important is that leaders understand that this is an issue and that they're genuinely committed to to making positive difference. What inspires me or what gives me hope is that the leaders that are beginning to look ahead and thinking about how are they positioning their company going forward, those that um, will take a bold step, companies that are shifting their business models in ways that are difficult to undo, is I think admirable in the sense that they are making the first step and hoping that others will will follow along. But And I think that they will. What also gives me hope is that we are living in an age where there are multiple generations of people that are seeing climate change as an issue. We know that young people are committed to making a difference on climate. We're seeing shifts in public opinion. And that gives me a lot of hope because I think that for a long time, you know, we've been, at least in the United States, you know, having the conversation that climate change is maybe happening, you know, where the science is unclear. And that was a purposeful approach in many ways. But the conversation is different. And I think that in many ways, businesses make logical, rational decisions. And then sometimes they they follow sort of, you know, what what is the sort of the culture saying that they should do? And so as we shift our culture and we shift our mindset, businesses are responding to that. They're seeing that. And that response elicits another response. Do you think there's anything we as in the bigger collective we can do to support businesses in, in that journey? What's missing to really accelerate that commitment forward? Well, there's sort of two levels to that. One is individual choice, sort of the way that we we shop, the way we consume. But I'm always careful with that answer because the problem is so large and systemic that it requires a large and systemic response. And so I think engaging with policymakers, I think for those that work in institutions that have influence, whether it's the investor institutions, whether it's up and down the value chain, whether it's uh, other influential organizations, I think using those platforms to remind and to highlight and to support efforts on climate is important so that the collective voice is in unison because that does matter and that does get attention. Thank you very much. It's been such a pleasure talking to you today. Thanks very much. That was really interesting. Thanks so much. Thank you. Our listeners know by now that this is one of the series of conversations that we're having with leaders and have been having with leaders over the last few weeks. Thank you for joining us today, Verena. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Please like and subscribe, and the next episode will be up and you'll be notified. Thanks very much. Bye.